Judges chapter 2 this evening in our journey through the scriptures. The book of Judges is a record of a 325 to 350 year period in the history uh, of the nation of Israel that is was characterized by a particular cycle that was repeated over and over and over again. In fact, seven times this cycle is uh, recorded as being repeated in the book of Judges, and it is a cycle that is known as the cycle of sin. And the children of Israel would uh, begin to rebel against God, rebel against His Word. They would willfully reject His commandments and willfully disobey Him, and uh, then as time would go on, uh, this rebellion and this sin, as it always does, would lead them into bondage. God would allow them to be defeated by one of the neighboring nations uh, around them who would then take them into bondage after a period of time. And sadly, uh, always a period of years, the people would grow sick of the bondage that their sin had put them in, they would cry out to God and plea with Him that He would send a deliverer to deliver them from literally the mess that they had gotten themselves into. I mean, they could not get themselves out of it in their own power. God would then graciously hear that prayer. He would send a deliverer who would deliver them from their bondage. And during the life of that deliverer or that judge, they would typically walk with God during that man's lifetime or woman's lifetime and then uh, begin to dabble in sin again, begin to willfully disobey God's Word, go into bondage, and the whole cycle would be repeated again. One of the reasons that this kind of historical cycle of sin is important to us to, to study as Christians is that many, many Christians live their Christian lives in that same cycle of deliberate willful disobedience to God's Word, always disobedience to God's Word, uh, sends me into bondage to whatever uh, kind of bondage obedience to God's Word was designed to protect me from. I find myself soon in a place that I cannot get myself out of the mess that I've gotten myself into, and talking about bondage to sin, not a surrounding nation, and then the cry out to the Lord for deliverance. God is always gracious to send His Holy Spirit into a situation when we cry out to Him to deliver us from that bondage. And then usually a person will then that lives in this cycle will obey God for a period of time and then uh, get fat and sassy spiritually, think they're, uh, you know, they can introduce a little disobedience back into their life again. They're smarter now. They can handle it now. I mean, they were younger then when that, the old cycle happened. They begin to reintroduce disobedience into their life, and the whole thing starts over again. And it is to live so far below the life that Christ has wants us to live and so far below uh, the life that He has paid for us to live in His blood. And so there's uh, tremendous applications of the book of Judges, nothing new under the sun uh, as it relates to our lives uh, this evening. So we pick things up at the end of chapter 1, which we looked at last week, and we ended chapter 1 with fully 
eight out of the twelve tribes of Israel choosing to uh, disobey God's commandment to them that they were to utterly wipe out and uh, drive out the enemies that were in the land of Israel and in the particular area of the land that had been allotted to them. Eight of them, one right after another. As we saw last week, they decided that they didn't want to cast the Canaanites all the way out or the Philistines or the Perizzites or the Hittites or the Hivites. And, and so they allowed them to live and they decided, okay, we're just going to kind of, we don't need to drive them out. We'll just have a peaceful coexistence. And so they uh, partially obeyed the Lord. And the problem with partial obedience is is that that is disobedience in the eyes of the Lord. The danger that they were in, as we saw last week, just a little bit of a review, the danger of what they did there was not so much uh, physically that they allowed these enemies to remain in their midst, though that was a bad thing and it would come back to real, it's going to come back to really haunt them. The really dangerous thing is that in their decision, is their decision making. They, eight out of the twelve tribes, look at God's commandments and no longer view them as commandments. These are suggestions. These are things you can do or not do. You can do as, you can obey them as far as is easy to obey them. As soon as it gets hard to obey God, you just jettison His commandments and you do the best that you can. And God will just have to lump it. That's just the way that it goes. Surely He doesn't expect uh, pure obedience from us, but He does. So that was the, that's the attitude that they had toward the Word of God, we can be partially obedient and this won't come back and bite us. But it does come back and bite us. God never gives a commandment in His Word where He looks and says, boy, you know, that Bible's kind of small. I'm going to add a few commandments in here to give it some heft. I mean, I want, them to, I want my people to carry a real book around when they come to church. It, it, he ta- everything He puts in there, it, He's serious about Everything that he puts in there is for our good. He knows what he's talking about. He's created us. He's created the world. And so he intends for these things to be obeyed for his glory and and for our good. Now, in uh, chapter 2 here, as we begin it, in this early stage of, of disobedience, the Lord then, we're told, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. And this angel of the Lord said to the children of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you uh, to the land of which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, but you shall tear down their altars. And, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Anytime we deliberately, willfully disobey the Lord, what happens? We hear a voice. God sends an angel. Now, what happens is if we disregard God's voice or the rebuker that He sends, and the voice that we hear most often is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Hey, buckaroo, what are you doing there? I don't know what He calls you. But it, but he gets my attention. Hey, what's going? What are you doing? What's this? Is it what? Why, what? What? And 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 I and I say it kiddingly with great respect toward him. But he he gets my attention. I never ever as a Christian have deliberately, willfully 
disobeyed his word except that there has been conviction related to that. Now, the problem is, is if I blow through that warning of God that He's giving to me, then it becomes easier to sin the next time, the next time, the next time. But I, 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 as God is my witness, I, I, I bear testimony to what God does here to the children of Israel, and that is He sends someone to warn us of the danger of our decision-making and where it's going to take us, to call us to repent of our sin. That's what he does here. Now, this person who comes to rebuke them and to warn them is called the angel of the Lord. And you notice the word angel there is, in, uh, is capitalized. So a lot of times you'll see the angel of the Lord uh, in the Bible and you'll see that the word angel is all in lowercase. The word isn't capitalized. And that when you read the context of that messenger that's sent by God, it's very clear that this is an angel, a created being that is angelic that God is sending into the situation. Periodically, as we see here, you will read about the angel of the Lord and the word angel is capitalized. And what that is indicating on the part of the translator is that they believe that this angel is not a mere angel, but this angel is none other than Jesus Christ himself. That what is happening here in chapter 2 is what is known as a Christophany or a, uh, a theophany. Those are good terms to know as Christians. There's some terms that are important. You know, I, I've just been thinking about this the last... And hold that thought. Remind me where I'm deviating, okay? But, you, you know, today there's like this backlash against uh, theological language. And it's like... Uh, you can't use justification, you can't use redemption, you can't use sanctification, you can't use these kind of words because it will uh, put people off or it will make them think that Christianity or relationship with God or the Bible is too technical and it's over their head. But you really think about it, every field that you want to be successful in, in the world demands that you learn its language. Doctors have to learn a language to be successful as a doctor. Plumbers have to learn a language in order to be successful as plumbers. Carpenters have to learn a language in order to be successful as a carpenter. And so if it's required to excel in any area of the natural life out there, why should we falter or apologize for the fact that God has a language that He intends us to learn and be diligent about. It isn't a thing of coming to church and say, this guy better keep me awake or I'm, I'm never going to church again. We come in with a motivation to learn the Word of God, learn the language, learn the theology, learn the, what it teaches to us about God so that we can then excel as Christians. And so a theophany, how about that? God is on the throne. A Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament where He comes into human history in bodily form before He was uh, born into the world. And so the reason that it's believed that this is none other than Jesus coming to deliver this message is the message that is, is delivered there in verse 1 is 
all the things that the angel is saying are things, and that the angel is ascribing to himself, are things that God himself did for the children of Israel. And so God comes in and, and he rebukes them and he sends the highest, apparently the highest messenger uh, possible in, in order to uh, rebuke them for not being obedient to the covenant that they had made with God. So God gives them here the warning of the consequences of this disobedience. Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out, these, these enemies within the land, before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Now that's, uh, I don't know the last time you had a thorn in your side, or you've been caught in a snare, but it's poetic language. And what God is saying is, you're choosing this sin. But in choosing this sin, you are choosing to follow another God in this world. And the God that you're choosing to, to worship is not as nice as me. Uh, he's not as good as, as I am. And what you're, the decisions that you're making are going to lead you into a life of pure misery and bondage. And for the child of God, these are children of God in the Old Testament, when a child of God decides to willfully disobey God's Word, you can, as authoritatively in the New Covenant as in the Old Covenant, say, you are putting yourself on a path that leads to pure misery, and you are headed straight into bondage. It is when Paul wrote the book uh, uh, to his letter to the Romans, and he wrote to them in chapter 6, and he basically told them, listen, you're either going to be a slave of God or you're going to be a slave of sin. There is no in-between. Everybody worships. Everybody serves. Everybody's a slave to somebody or something. And it is only as we make ourselves a slave to God that we keep ourselves free from becoming slaves or in, put into bondage to the different sins uh, of this world. And so he warns them just up front, this is your future if you don't repent. And so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and they wept. And then they called the name of that place Bochim and they sacrificed there to the Lord, probably a burnt offering, maybe a sin offering. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. And so the reaction that the children of Israel had to this rebuke of God was that they began to cry and lament and, and uh, sorrow over the rebuke. The problem is they never repented. They never, ever repented. The Bible says that godly sorrow, a true, a holy sorrow, a sorrow that comes from God, works repentance. It will always translate into repentance where I will be sorry for what it is that I have done, and I will be sorry enough to turn from that sin. There is a sorrow over sin that is a sorrow over getting caught. So a person is caught and rebuked for their sin, and they are sorry over the fact that they, they've been caught in doing the sin, but they're not sorry that they committed the sin. And so at, at that kind of sorrow, as soon as they get another chance, they're smarter. Okay, what do I have to learn about this so I didn't get caught the next time? That's not a godly sorrow. 
Godly sorrow is when God busts me on something and I look at it and I feel terrible over the fact that I have sinned. I feel terrible that I forced him to rebuke me in this way. And then as an evidence of the fact that I am truly in a godly way sorry for what I've done, I then repent of my sin. It is repentance that differentiates between fleshly sorrow and godly sorrow. They do not repent. They just heard a sermon. They wept at the end of the sermon. They offered a sacrifice, probably a burnt offering, which was an offering of consecration, saying, yes, we are fully committed to God. I mean, you have this hugely emotional experience that is going on, but nobody repents. And so it doesn't bring God any pleasure at all. When God rebukes us, he, the, that, that rebuke hasn't done its full work until we've repented. So maybe there's one or two of us that sits here tonight and God's been rebuking you. Every time He does, he does you, you weep, you cry, I'm so I'm terrible, it's all this. And, and, and you offer, you know, another extra five bucks in the offering or some kind of a, some deal, you know, to, just to, sh- but there's no repentance. But, Maybe you never knew that's what God was looking for. So that's why we go through the Bible. And so the Lord says, no, what I want you to do is, I want you to feel bad about what you did, but I want you to feel bad enough that you make a change. And that's what repentance is. It means to have a change of mind about the direction I'm going in life that then turns into a change in direction in my life. And so they, 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 do, they go through all the motions, but no repentance. And so the people serve the Lord I'm, I'm not filled with the Spirit or anything. There was a fly up here. And uh, they're a little spazzy this time of the year, fall and spring. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days the, of the elders who outlived Joshua, those that, uh, of his generation but lived longer, who had seen all the great works of the Lord for which he had done for Israel, the crossing of of the Jordan River, the conquest of Jericho, all these great miracles that God had done for the second generation. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Harris in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount, uh, Mount uh, Gaash. Uh, and so the uh, passing of this faithful generation that occurred, and this is something that was recorded in the book of Joshua, at the end of the book of Joshua, I think God brings this kind of flashback of Joshua uh, uh, dying and then going to be with his fathers uh, in order to kind of set the stage for uh, all of the trouble that was going to uh, come after that generation. And we pick that up here in, uh, in verse 10. And when all that generation, that older generation, had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them, and they had two characteristics. Number one, they did not know the Lord, and number two, nor the work which the Lord had done for Israel. And so here's where it all starts. A new generation. One generation's been faithful to God. They go to hand off the baton to the next generation. And this generation 
fumbles that baton, but they do it on purpose. So it's not an, an accident. So the whole cycle now of the sin, the bondage, the whole deal now starts here in verse 10 of chapter 2. And so the characteristics of this new generation were told there in verse 10. First of all, they did not know the Lord. Very important to recognize that it does not say they did not know of the Lord. They knew of the Lord like you can't believe. They did not know the Lord. They did not have a personal relationship with the Lord. And so here they've been raised around all of God's blessings, all of the blessings of the, that, that came to the children of Israel through the faithfulness of the, the prior generation. And, it's, and then they look at it, they live in the midst of the blessings, they partake of it, but then when it becomes their, uh, their point in time where it's time for them to get a relationship with God, walk with God, so that their moment in time in human history is is a blessed one and a fruitful one and they can then hand a godly baton off to the following generation uh, they take and they decide no we don't want to run the way the, the former generation ran it's kind of like a child that's raised in a very solid Christian home and a parent can make sure that they know all about the Lord but that child is going to decide when that child gets out of that household whether they're going to walk with God or not or whether they're going to have a relationship with God or not. And there's no set guarantee really in the Bible that assures that if we raise up a child in, in the things of the Lord, that they're always going to be saved and they're always going to have a personal relationship with God ultimately. In general, it's true. As the book of Proverbs uh, declares, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he will not depart from it. But God will never force a child to become a Christian simply because his parents or her parents have been that. Now, I do believe in the power of raising a child in the things of the Lord. We were talking about this in a pastor's meeting a couple of weeks ago. It does seem that when a child is raised in the things of the Lord, we can't look and say, yes, they'll absolutely give their life to the Lord and the Lord will force them because that isn't, isn't accurate. But God does seem to put a tether on them that they only wander out so far and then when they realize, hey, I'm stupid and God's smart. They at least know where to come back. I'm talking about my experience with God, personally. I knew a little bit more, you know, come on, I mean, it's got to you know, go out there. And it, I, thankfully, it, I mean, I, maybe everything about me isn't, you know, faulty. It didn't take me 18 years. Uh, but I learned really quick, okay, I don't have enough wisdom to make right decisions for what's coming my way in life every day, but I know the one who does. And because of a godly heritage for a time in my childhood, I knew who to go back to and to commit my life to. So it was instrumental in me becoming to, to, to know the Lord. And so uh, it, 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 obviously it's important to do that, but you can even do that and a child can decide they want nothing to do with God all of their life and die in their sins. The second characteristic of this generation there in verse 10, is they did not know the work which uh, the Lord had done for them. And the, that word know, you've got to really take note of it because very, very often 
when uh, I will hear teaching on this passage, the, uh, the tendency is to really wail on that former generation. And I say, look at this right here. The second, the second generation uh, faltered because the first generation failed to pass on a knowledge of the Lord to the second generation. And there's a big problem with that. And one of the big problems with coming to that conclusion is that Nowhere in the entirety of the book of Judges does God condemn the first generation and accuse them of having done that. In fact, the Lord, even in this passage, commends the first generation for their godliness and for their faithfulness. The problem with pinning the blame on the first generation is it takes the blame away and thus the lesson away from where it belongs, and that is on the second generation. They knew all kinds of things about God and their history with God. It wasn't that they were ignorant. The word know ought to be used. In, 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 we should translate it more accurately, acknowledge. It's the same Hebrew word that is, uh, is translated acknowledge in, in Proverbs uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not on thine own understanding. In all of, their, all of your ways, acknowledge God, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. And so what we've got going on here isn't that they were ignorant of their godly heritage and their history, but they chose not to acknowledge it. They chose to ignore it in order to rebel against it. And so the fault lies completely on the second generation. Now, is it important for the first generation or one generation to pass on the things of the Lord to the next generation? Very important. Taught all the way through the Bible, but it's not what's happening here in, in this uh, passage. It takes two things in order not to lose the next generation to sin and to rebellion and to a pagan culture. Number one, we must pass on our godly heritage to our children and to the next generation. But second, they also must want to have a relationship with God and to grow in that relationship. And I think the danger that a child who, again, raised in a very solid Christian home faces is to fail to recognize all of the blessings that they have enjoyed because of the faith and the obedience of their parents. It's very easy to think that this just happens and they don't recognize the blessings that I've been raised in are a result of the obedience of my parents in their walk with the Lord. And because there's a tendency to then uh, have a disconnect with where, where the blessings are coming from, then they think, I can just go out in the world and live any way that I want, and I will continue to enjoy the blessings in adult life that I enjoyed in my home while I was growing up. And that kind of person gets a very quick wake-up call from the Lord, and there's the realization that, no, these blessings are conditional upon, uh, upon walking uh, with the Lord. I also want to say that this second generation is not condemned simply for being a new generation. A younger generation can be much more godly than the previous generation. They can do far greater things than the previous generation. A generation is not lesser simply because they have followed a generation or they are a younger generation. 
And, and what makes this uh, generation worse than the previous uh, generation and makes them wicked is that instead of growing deeper in the things of the Lord because of the spiritual heritage that had been passed on to them by the previous generation, instead of using that foothold that their parents had gotten spiritually and had passed on to them and then enlarging uh, on that, they chose to abandon following the Lord. And so the former generation, faithful to God's calling, now it was time for the second generation to step up and be faithful too. The second generation, if you've been raised in a Christian home, you should exceed the knowledge of the Scriptures, experience with God of your parents and your grandparents. You should know things, do things, be things that they never dreamed of because of the head start that they have given you. And I want to, I want to speak candidly to all of us that have been raised, that all of you that have been raised in that kind of an environment, that there is a responsibility that goes with that. That is not a privilege that is to be just frittered away and wasted. Shame on anyone who has been raised in a godly home, furnished with a godly heritage, given a rich history in Christ that does not enlarge on that and then give to their children at least that same heritage, if not a better one. It is wrong. It has to be one of the most heartbreaking things that God sees is that when someone has been given that much and then they raise their children Apart from God, they raise them in a home of lukewarmness, apostasy, deliberate disobedience to the Word of God. It should never, ever be. We are called as God's people to enlarge the influence of God in this world. And if you or I have been blessed with that kind of a heritage, it's not something to be wasted or frittered away. Those are strong words. Those words can cut very, very deep. But if they jar us out of an apathy, or they jar us out of wasting that, that kind of a heritage, then it's worth saying it this evening. Because these people are headed for big, big trouble. But they're so close to the, the blessings of their parents that they can't they can't believe that it can happen uh, to them. And so, verse 11, Then the children of Israel did evil, this generation, in the sight of the Lord, and they serve the Baals. And we'll return to what that worship was about in just a moment. So they, uh, they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, uh, God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed. You can't forsake the Lord without following something. And it's always a, a significant step down. Amen. It's a significant step down. There's God, and then there's everything else. 
And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. He just wanted to love them, just wanted to bless them. And, and they're making him mad. Don't make him mad. He's been too good to us to just be doing things that provoke him to anger. And they forsook the Lord, and they served Baal and the Ashtoreth. Baal was the god of nature. He was the god of the weather. Ashtoreth was the god. Essentially, both of them were like... Baal was the male. Ashtoreth was the female. And they were basically the male and female gods of lust. That's what it was. Listen, if man's going to come up with a religion, what's he going to worship? He's going to try and sanctify it with, with some kind of gods. And that's basically what it was. And what the children of Israel would do, or the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth was they wanted to have a fertile crop the next year. They wanted to have their, um, their herds be fertile and to enlarge themselves. And so in the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth, what you would do is you'd go down to the temple, you would engage in prostitution with one of the temple prostitutes, reportedly, I mean, this was the way the whole thing went, Baal and Ashtoreth would watch this sexual act, become excited themselves, engage themselves sexually, and the fruit would be greater herds the next year and a greater crop. Now, what church can fight against that? Little Calvary Chapel, look at Calvary Chapel of Modesto here, Sunday night. What, look what we're fighting against in the culture. Look at the options that people have on a Sunday night, just associated with lust. The movies, the television, the internet, the, anything, the parties, the, all of this kind of stuff. You say, how in the world can we make a dent when the world is offering people all of this? The power of the Spirit. What we experience in our hearts of knowing that we're in the truth, that God's making us holy. You don't even have to go out and partake in all that stuff to look at it and say, listen, I, I know that what I have with God is infinitely superior to what people are worshiping out there. But that's the problem that, that they were facing there, is here's the children of Israel, the next generation. They got all this stuff being thrown in their face. They got all these things that are trying to entice them and they go in that direction because God looks boring. You hear what they're doing down there at the temple of Baal on Sunday nights? I ain't going to Calvary Chapel, no way. And so this is what they gave themselves to. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So verse 13, that's the whole sin part of the cycle. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And so he... Uh, now that... When, God, when God's anger is described as hot, uh, you don't want to go sent to cut your own switch. So he's upset. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. This is the bondage part of the cycle. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. And wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were greatly distressed. When God said, it's going to be thorns in your side and it's going to be a snare, He wasn't kidding. It's a miserable 
miserable life. And they put themselves in the bondage. Where God looks and says, I want to be with you. I want to be for you. I want to bless you. But if you put yourself on this side of things, I'm going to have to, even I am going to have to actively resist you. And that's what he did. Nevertheless, in verse 16, here's the third part of the, the cycle, or the fourth part where God would raise up uh, a deliverer for them. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, and they played the harlot with other gods, and they bowed down to them. They turned quickly away from the way in which their fathers walked, and obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. And so here is the final segment. They would obey God during the lifetime of the judge, and then soon as he died, they'd scurry back to sin uh, very, very quickly to begin the cycle again. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings uh, nor from their stubborn way. So the, the whole end of the cycle and, and how all of that operated uh, with them. And then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed, that's deliberate disobedience, They've transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. So God had told them, you obey me, and I'm going to drive these people out in front of you, but you've got to bring, you got to bring your obedience to this game, and you've got to bring faith to, to it. They didn't do it, so that covenant was agreement with, with them. God said, if you don't do it, I'm not going to do this for you. I will no longer drive out uh, before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them, these nations remaining in the land, I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. And therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. God's first plan uh, plan A, his perfect will, was that they would have driven these nations, uh, these people, out of the nation of Israel. But they didn't do it. And so God pulls back and he says, all right, what I'm going to do then is I'm going to make, I'm going to make, you, I'm going to use your disobedience now to teach you a couple of, of lessons. And, God, and God's going to try and work it together for good a little bit here. And the first thing he, he said, he's going to leave these, these people among them Number one, in order to test them, and we're going to see in a couple of verses, in order to teach them. And the test, the, the reason he left these people in the midst of the children of Israel, number one, the children of Israel weren't as inter interested in driving them out. So the Lord says, all right, uh, they'll stay in the land, but they'll be a test to you. In other words, their pagan culture that you allow into the land to go on around you, that's going to be a test uh, for you to see whether you're going to walk with me or not. You know, one of the things, um, the fact that we have a choice in whether we walk with God or we don't walk with God makes our decision to walk with God 
valuable to Him. Uh, we face a test every single day when we wake up. When I wake up in, in the, uh, each morning, I go into my phone booth, and I come out with my Superman outfit on. Super pastor. Obviously, he's going to walk with God all day long today. Fact of the matter is, I'm just like you. Every morning I wake up and I make a decision on whether I'm going to walk with God that day or not and to commit the, Lord, the, the day to the Lord or not. I live in a very pagan culture. You do too. But one of the things, the, the, it's a bad thing that the culture is the way that it is. But the good thing about it is, is when I wake up in the morning and I say, God, because I love you and because of the power of your Holy Spirit, I want to say no to all of that and I want to walk with you today, the presence of an option in the form of a pagan culture makes my decision meaningful and a blessing to God. The classic example is um, if you have... Uh, the you know one of these little baby dolls that they used to make now now they make baby dolls that uh, can pin you to the floor and win a gold medal in the Olympics in wrestling I mean what these dolls can do but in the old days you get one of those dolls you pull that string out right but it's all program it's all robotic it's so there's no choice there it's just going to say that thing over and over again. So no, like, I mean, a little girl, she's in her own category. She's in a dream world, so that means something to her. But no adult goes in. I mean, nobody goes in and takes their child's doll and says, I'm not feeling affirmed today. I'm just going to pull that out. Oh, somebody loves me. Somebody loves me. Because it doesn't mean anything because there's no, it doesn't have any option but to say that. But by virtue of the fact that we have an option to obey God or to disobey God, on a daily basis, it makes our decision to walk with Him and obey Him, it makes it a blessing to Him. And so we have our own little test every single day. And they're going to fail the test, but we want to, we want to uh, pass the test. And, and so it was the, uh, God says, I'm going to work this together for good to the degree that I can in their disobedience in making it a test. In chapter 3, we'll just go through a few verses here before we get to the, the judges. Now these are the nations which the Lord left in the land that He might test Israel by them, that is, all those who had not known the wars in Canaan. And, and so these were the nations that were left in order to teach them, to give them the option. And this was only so that the generation of the children of Israel might, know, might be taught to know war so we've got a teaching here, testing and a teaching, at least those who had not formerly known it. And so God says, I'm going to leave this, uh, these nations within the land. I'm not going to drive them out in order to teach the children of Israel to know war. And the idea isn't that they would know um, how to, you know, strategy in warfare or, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, specific abilities on how to wield a sword or these kinds of things. What he wanted to teach them was about 
the most important thing about warfare for a child of God, and that was the importance of being right with God when we go into battle, and then the, the importance of walking by faith in, with, with him and then watching him deliver the, the victory as, as we know that we're right with him. And so this is what he wanted to teach them, and they were going to have plenty of wars to learn uh, about that in their future. Namely, the five lords of the Philistines. These are the, the groups that were left in the land. All the Canaanites, the, Sido, uh, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in uh, Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon, to the entrance of Hamath. Now, this is a, this is a lot of sin to leave in your life. And, and this, is a lot of, this is a lot of enemies to leave in, in, in your life and in the land. That's what they were doing. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And so here we have this uh, 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 God trying to work this thing together for good a little bit to bring them to him a little bit later. Hmm. Mm-hmm. 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 Verse 5, let's go just a couple more verses here, and then we'll, we'll ponder again. And thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and, and they took their daughters to be their wives. They gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. Now, this was... What God is doing here is he's trying to give us a glimpse at how grievous the sin was that the children of Israel were doing in his sight. And you notice that phrase that's repeated over and over again, in his sight, in his sight, in his sight. He's watching all of it. One of the, one of the greatest motivations for holiness is a recognition of the presence of God with me all of the time. He sees everything. And what I want him to do is I want him to see what's going to bless his heart. But here what they did is, you notice how far they've gone in their sin. They go from a place of being raised to worship the Lord to then evidently they hit a place where they're just going to kind of uh, live alongside these uh, idolaters and, and let them live alongside them. And then pretty soon, you know, they're kind of looking into it a little bit. And then pretty soon they're down at the same temple, worshiping the same thing that pagans are worshiping. And then the next thing you know right here, they're giving their kids over to intermarry with these people. This is so far away from what God was wanting them to do. I mean, this, they are mixing this holy blood that God's going to bring through this people, the Messiah, into the world... And they're, they're making these pagan cultures, these people that God was going to drive out of the land because they were not only a poison in the land, but they were a poison in the human condition. He wanted them utterly destroyed. And the children of Israel decide, we're not only going to let them live, we're going to intermarry with them. We're going to make them family. And that complicated things for God. Because he's the head of that family. And the reason that this decision that they make here is especially grievous to God is that God had spoken to Abraham hundreds of years prior and said, 
through your seed, I am going to bless all of the nations of the world. How so? And bringing the Messiah into the world from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, including these people. And they are throwing away an incredible responsibility and privilege that they have before God to be faithful to God, to be used by God in order to provide the world with a Savior, with a Messiah, and they throw it all away for sex and for paganism and for idolatry. And it, that's, that's a worse trade-off than Esau did trading his birthright for a bowl of red. <laughs> we don't even know if it was beans or stew or what. But he threw it away for a bowl of red. And that's what they're doing here. I'm going to stop here, here tonight. But, but I'm going to stop again on an exhortive side of this thing related to our lives. When God saved each one of us, He saved us to save us because He loves us. And he wants us to be forgiven. He wants us to have the confidence of heaven. But there's a whole purpose attached to our lives when we become Christians. You think about how many people, how many people who've become very prominent in the kingdom of God, done great things for God in their generation. I mean, people whose names become household words because of how God used them. And they came to know Christ through what would be an almost completely obscure Christian who was just quietly being faithful to serve God in a Sunday school classroom. You and I live in the same world the children of Israel lived into. And they're offering us an exchange every single day to throw away the plans that God has eternal plans, the expansion of the kingdom of God plans through our lives to throw it away for a little sensuality, a little time in sin, a little rebellion against God, a little paganism. And the children of Israel teach us that it's a wrong thing to do to God, absolutely unfair to do to God, but it also destructive toward us. This book really plows deeply into our lives. And it really smashes head-on into any willful, deliberate disobedience in our life or a wavering in the face of temptation. And that needs to happen because the culture that we're living in is becoming more and more Baal-like and more and more Ashtoreth-like and it is all the more so the younger you are. You're getting hit in ways my generation never got hit. And so it requires a, a strong determination in the Spirit of God to say, I'm going to walk with the Lord, and God will be faithful to come alongside us and make us successful in that. 
We have no idea till one day we get into heaven. If we live out our three score and ten, or we live out until the Lord returns or He takes us home individually, we have no idea what God is doing through our lives and we'll one day see, see from God when we stand before the Bema seat, the reward seat of Christ, and God says, this is all I did through your life and your obedience, stuff you never knew. So the passage is great. It stirs us on to, to being holy, making that stand, not making the same mistake, disastrous mistake, that the children of Israel made. Next week we'll